digestive system includes the anatomy of the digestive tract or digestive tube and organs that are associated with the tube. If we go back in the embryology and see how all these organs develop, we'll see that that's actually a long tube that starts in the mouth and ends in the anus. But then during the development, it gets specialized in different segments, different parts, and many cells organized in tissues and organs will be associated with the tube to help with the functions of the digestive system. In the first slides, what we list are the main functions of all these digestive tract, including the action of all these organs associated with it. First one, motility. That means that when we get food in the initial part of the tube, that food has to move along the tube. And for that purpose, there are different steps that include ingestion, mastication, which is chewing of the food, mixing with saliva in the mouth, swallowing or deglutition, and peristalsis and segmentation. The last two, peristalsis and segmentation, will start in the esophagus. And it's a wave of contractions that is starting the esophagus and keeps running all the way down. The main purpose of this is to move the food along, push it forward to get through all segments. Segmentation is a movement that helps to mix. So at the same time the food goes forward, it gets mixed. That's important for the digestion process. Second secretion, which means the presence of enzymes. We get the food, different types of meals that we get, and food types, but they have to be reduced to its minimal nutrients so we can take advantage of them. And that is achieved by enzymes. Enzymes that are made by different organs along the tube, starting with the salivary glands, pancreas, gallbladder, and also hormones. Hormones that are made and produced by cells to regulate all this process of digestion, which is very fine reg regulated. Like, for instance, if you eat some fatty food, well, that is detected by cells in the stomach. They secrete certain hormones that travel in the blood locally and stimulate specialized cells in the stomach and later in the small intestine to secrete enzymes, especially for that type of food. So it's very fine regulated. We'll get to that point when we get to the segments. The word digestion stands for all these breaking food, breaking of the food um, into the smaller units. And there are main two, 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 two components of this digestion, physical and chemical. Physical meaning mixing, chew it, you break the big piece of food into smaller pieces and make it easier to digest. Chemical digestion is the action of the enzymes in different ways. And once this is digested, next step is absorption. All these nutrients has, have to get to the blood or lymph 
in order to circulate to the different places. And the food continues its way along the two. Storage and elimination, basically the last part of the digestive tube, where all these components of the food that are not digested, are not utilized by us, they are eliminated. Now, along with all these functions that we described, we can also include an immune function because all the epithelium, the cells that are covering the digestive tube, they are simple columnar epithelium, but it's a very strong physical barrier that protects against infection with pathogens. And it's very common that, well, the food that we eat is contaminated with different levels of bacteria and unless it's completely sterile and specially prepared but usually it's contaminated with a certain level of bacteria and the stomach, the intestines protect us against infection or invasion for uh, some of these pathogens. The sequence of the tube, this is more anatomy, starts with the oral cavity, pharynx, esophagus, stomach, small intestine, large intestine, and anus. And we have a list of accessory organs here, the teeth, tongue, salivary glands, liver, gallbladder, pancreas, all these, they play an important role in the function of the digestive system. <coughs> and we can have it depicted here in this picture, very simple diagram, where we see that most of these organs are located in the abdominal cavity. But also, we find it in the thoracic cavity. The esophagus is in the thoracic cavity. Now, how the digestive tube, or GI tract, as we call it here, gastrointestinal tract, it is regulated. First nervous system, parasympathetic and sympathetic which is called extrinsic. Extrinsic because it's not from the same digestive tube or digestive system. It comes from the nervous system. Parasympathetic stimulates motility, secretion of different organs and parts of the digestive system. The vagus nerve, cranial nerve number 10, is the one that brings all these fibers of the parasympathetic. And the sympathetic, as you remember, is the opposite action, inhibits the motility or peristalsis and secretion. Now there are other regulation by hormones which can come from the brain or from other digestive organs. like the gallbladder, for instance, like the pancreas. An intrinsic regulation, which means the same intestine, the gut wall, 
contains some neurons that help in the regulation by reflex loops. For example, as soon as we swallow the food, that food gets into our esophagus. And in the esoph it dilates the esophagus. And that stretching of the wall of the esophagus is detected by sensory neurons that are in the wall. They send a response in the form of contraction. So it's an intrinsic regulation. Now let's go uh, segment by segment, defining and describing all the functions of the digestive tube. In the mouth, what happens in the mouth, the most important thing is that we physically break down the food, mastication, and mixing it with the saliva. Important that in the saliva we have this enzyme called salivary amylase, which is going to digest carbohydrates. This is the enzyme that we studied last week in the lab. It digests the polysaccharides, the starch, the glycogen into maltose units, basically, disaccharides. After this comes the next movement, which is swallowing or deglutition. The swallowing has three parts at least, or we can divide it in three phases or two phases. What is shown in the picture is the different phases. The first, you see the bolus of food, which is shown in red, in the mouth. And the first movement is when we push the food in our mouth against the palate, and that is made by the tongue. If you recall the steps during swallowing food, the next time you eat a meal, try to make it conscious, you will notice. First movement is to swallow as you push the food against your palate. And the tongue is very important for that. Once you do that, the food will reach the soft palate, which is more posterior. And that is the point where reflexes are activated. When we examine the food with the, I mean, the mouth with a tongue depressor, there is a point where we touch with the tongue depressor and we stimulate the gag reflex. So that is a part where the food gets during the swallowing process after you push it against the palate. Once that happens, reflexes are activated and those reflexes are going to contract the muscles of the pharynx, which are going to make the epiglottis that cartilage of the airway, close the airway, and the food will slide back to the esophagus. This is called the pharyngeal phase. First, we have the mouth, oral phase, pharyngeal phase, and the last is the esophageal, when the food is in the esophagus. And then we see the food enter into the esophagus, and it will not stop until the stomach. Now, what I said is, when we swallow, food dilates the esophagus, yes, and the esophagus will contract. And it starts a peristalsis, it's like a wave of contractions that will move the food along forward towards the stomach. And in the last two pictures here, we see the food arriving to the stomach. Enzyme, 
these soft palate, when it's stimulated, when the food arrives there, as a reflex, sends the signal for contraction of the pharyngeal muscles of the pharynx. So more about the esophagus. The esophagus is a muscular tube. It's a muscular tube that connects the mouth, pharynx, with the stomach. Initially, in the top part, the esophagus in the junction with the pharynx, there's a little bit of skeletal muscle, but along the way, middle third and closer to the stomach is just smooth muscle. Now the junction between the esophagus and the stomach is right at the level of the diaphragm because the esophagus has to go through the diaphragm in order to get uh, reach the stomach. Now the diaphragm, this skeletal muscle that divides thoracic and abdominal cavity, actually has three holes. One for the esophagus, one for the aorta, and one for the vena cava. And that's what we call esophageal hiatus, which means just that space uh, where the esophagus goes through. Now, at the junction with the stomach, the lower esophagus, that junction has a thickening of smooth muscle. It's actually the smooth muscle that is uh, contracted all the time. And we call that lower esophageal sphincter. Sometimes we abbreviated this as LES, lower esophageal sphincter. And it's always closed. It's always closed, and it only opens when the food arrives here. After we swallow, when the food goes through the esophagus, it reaches the stomach, this lower esophageal sphincter will open and let the food get into the stomach. And when the food is in the stomach, when we are eating, this sphincter will remain closed all the time. Otherwise, there will be regurgitation, which is the food going back going back in the esophagus. And there are many times that we eat where we are laying down on the couch and the food will not return to your esophagus. It will stay there unless you eat a lot and by pressure you will feel some discomfort. But other than that, it remains closed all the time. There is something called esophageal gastroesophageal reflux, which is a problem because contents of the stomach go back through the sphincter to the esophagus and irritates the esophagus. That happens sometimes in some people that eat very late at night, when they go to bed, next morning you wake up with a burning sensation behind the sternum. And that's why, it doesn't happen all the time, some people are more sensitive to that. During the night, the stomach is fixing, I mean, digesting the food, stomach is acidic. And that position that you are horizontal, there's more pressure against the sphincter, it may relax a little bit and some contents go back to the esophagus and produce this irritation that is felt in the next morning. Next segment 
is the stomach. So in the esophagus, there is no digestion of anything, no chemical digestion, no enzymes made here. The only enzymes in the first segment is the amylase, the salivary amylase. Now in this stomach, food is stored, but this doesn't mean that the food will stay there for hours. It means temporary storage. It stays there as long as it's processed. Here is where the proteins will be digested. And many bacteria are killed here by the effect of the gastric juice, which is very acidic, pH 2. Not many bacteria can stand that. And then after the food is processed here, it will move to the small intestine as a pasty material. And this is called chyme. Brief review of the anatomy of the stomach here. The esophagus, the junction with the stomach, that is called cardia, cardiac region. Then we have this upper part, which is called the fundus. The diaphragm will come in this way here. Then the big portion, the body, and the exit is called the pyloric antrum, where there is a pyloric sphincter. This is the limit between the stomach and the small intestine. Small intestine has three parts. The initial part of the small intestine is called duodenum, which is labeled here as duodenum. So the junction of duodenum with the stomach is the pyloric sphincter. All that region is called pylorus, and the last portion of the stomach there is pyloric antrum. One thing we see in the picture is that the layers of the wall, there are two layers of smooth muscle along the tube. But the stomach has three layers. That's the difference with the rest of the tube. And that allows stronger contractions, better mixing, and in different directions. Because the two layers that the tube has all along are the inner circular and the outer longitudinal, where there's a third oblique layer added to the stomach wall. If we see the surface, the inner surface of the stomach, we'll see that it is arranged as many, many foldings of the surface or mucosa and determine big spaces called gastric pits. And all this segment of foldings and pits is called gastric gland. It's not a different organ, it's just the epithelium of the stomach arranging that way and ups and downs and big deep spaces called gastric pits. All that is called gastric gland but it's part of the epithelium, the mucosa of the stomach. And in the gastric pits, the cells that are around the pit, 
They are named in different ways. There are mucus cells, parietal cells, chief cells, because they are specialized in production of different enzymes. The mucus cells, as the name says, they produce mucus. They look like goblet cells. And that mucus is going to protect, actually, the surface of the stomach. Mucus neck cells are called because they are more, are closer to the surface uh, of the stomach. The other types of cells are number two, parietal cells. These cells will secrete hydrochloric acid. We mentioned pH of the, the stomach is very low, it's two, because of the secretion of hydrochloric acid. Besides this acid, the parietal cells will make this substance called intrinsic factor. We abbreviated as IF. And it's important for absorption of vitamin B12 that is made by the parietal cells. Number three, we have the chief cells or zygomatic cells. These cells will make this substance called pepsinogen which is the main enzyme of the stomach. Actually, the enzyme is called pepsin, but it is secreted as the inactive form, and that inactive form is called pepsinogen. So this pepsinogen will has, has to be activated into pepsin in order for this to work. Number four, ECL cells. These are cells that produce histamine, serotonin. These are regulators. These are the ones that regulate the function. They determine when the parietal cells make hydrochloric acid, when the chief cells make pepsin or pepsinogen, depending on the different stimulus that they have. G cells, D cells are also cells that make hormones, gastrin, somatostatin. All these three cells are regulator cells. They don't make enzymes. They uh, produce hormones that will regulate all these functions. So you said they don't make enzymes. No, they don't produce enzymes. They produce hormones and signals to regulate the function of the stomach. Carbohydrates will, uh, will not be digested in the stomach if they were not properly mixed in the food with the amylase. And so, for instance, if you uh, eat a piece of food, that a piece of bread, a big piece of bread, you don't chew it properly in your mouth and you swallow it, that piece of bread will stay in your stomach as that. And it will resume digestion of carbohydrates when it gets to the intestine, to the duodenum or duodenum, because there is when it will find pancreatic amylase that will continue the digestion of carbohydrates. But while in the stomach, that piece of bread will probably suffer some transformation by the pepsin or pH, but carbohydrates will not be broken down. And that, will, that may slow the digestion. That's why it's very important to chew the food.
before you swallow it. Yeah, and, you, and you notice sometimes when you eat in a hurry and you just a couple of rounds in your mouth and you swallow it and you swallow it and you swallow it. And then sometimes you have a slow digestion, you feel bloated for longer. And that's because your stomach is working harder because there's food that is not well properly mixed. And uh, it will continue still, but uh, it may take longer uh, for the stomach to work. That's, uh, that's an important, it's important because it has to do with oral health. I mean, people that don't have, I mean, have problems in, with the teeth, missing, or some problem, um, and they, they are not able to chew, they'll masticate properly, and they have to swallow it. And then they have problems with digestion later on. This is a picture that shows how these parietal cells make the hydrochloric acid. Um, and where the hydrochloric acid comes from is from chloride that is excreted at this part. And you see how the hydrogen is exchanged with the potassium here. And now if this cell is secreting a chloride, there must be a balance. So in the other side, right here, in the blood, you see a chloride coming into the cell. But that chloride, when it gets in, has to be an exchange with bicarbonate. So every time the hydrochloric acid is secreted into the gastric juice, there is a chloride that has to be moved from the blood to the cell. But this chloride has to be exchanged with the bicarbonate, as we see here. In yellow, we see a bicarbonate. So everything is about balance of charges. And this bicarbonate, when it gets into the blood, it will change the pH. It will turn the pH more alkaline. And that's, that has a name that's called alkaline tide. And that happens sometimes, especially when we eat a lot, like a delicious ribs and the barbecue Sunday and, and some beers and you got a feast and then after 30 minutes one hour what happens you feel kind of dizzy you feel tired you feel like taking a nap and that the effect is because of the change of the pH temporary change of course because excessive bicarbonate is entering into your blood but that's temporary, temporary, and um, uh, so again, some people are more sensitive for that than others. Why the HCL? Why the hydrochloric acid? Because it works with the pepsin or pepsinogen. This is what we described in the previous slide, how the hydrochloric is uh, secreted. The gastrin is made by the G cells. That's one of the hormones that will regulate all this. The gastrin will stimulate secretion of the hydrochloric acid in parietal cells. At the same time, this gastrin made by the G cells will stimulate ECL cells, which are going to make histamine. The histamine will stimulate parietal cells too. 
and the mediator are H2 receptors or histamine receptors. So histamine is made by the ECL cell, and the ECL cell, the histamine, is going to stimulate parietal cells to make HCL. That is the basis of the use of these medications called Tagamet and Zantac, because they are H2 receptors blockers. If they block the H2 receptors, with the parietal cells will not make too much hydrochloric acid. And that helps for the treatment of some problems like gastritis, reflux, gastric ulcers. They are not, they don't cure the problem, but they relieve the symptom of uh, excessive acidity. Now, parasympathetic neurons stimulate parietal and ECL cells to make more HCL. And the parasympathetic cranial nerve number 10, it's involved in the reflex that we have when we see food, and that is connected to the senses. When we see food, when we smell the food, then the parasympathetic is activated and it stimulates parietal cells to make hydrochloric acid. ECL cells that will make histamine and stimulate parietal cells to make more acid. In preparation, because our body assumes that we, we see food or smell food, we're gonna eat it. And stomach kind of gets ready for receiving all the food. So the hydrochloric acid make the pH go down to two. And when we eat proteins, the first thing that happens with proteins when they are exposed to low pH, they get denatured. The proteins get denatured first. Then the chief cells will make pepsinogen. And this pepsinogen is secreted to the surface of the stomach as pepsinogen inactive enzyme. But this pepsinogen is activated by the HCL. And now it turns into pepsin. And the pepsin is the one that starts breaking down proteins. pH2 is optimal for activity of this enzyme called pepsin. I've always had the question of if the if the soda, Pepsi, has something to do with this pepsin name. Well, pepsin actually means digestion. That's why they use this word for that. But I don't know if they had that in mind when they named the, the soda. Maybe it's a coincidence. I always wonder, but never had a, uh, it never comes back to me to, to find out and look for the origin of this word. Different. You see how this cell, the parietal cell, I showed you in the picture, the, 
secretes hydrogens, hydrogens in exchange with potassium, but that's where the metals will work. It will block that pump. And if you see the description of the medication, it will say proton pump inhibitor. And that's a, that, that's a, the, the pump that secretes hydrogens. Inhibit that pump. Yeah, the omeprazole will work right here. Right in that. You see how this hydrogen is created here? Exchanged by potassium, so that will block this. It helps. It helps, but it's not the cure for the problem. If it's an ulcer, gastritis, and maybe other things causing it, but it is prescribed as a, a good helper for the symptoms especially, and promote uh, or favor healing. It's not much acidic environment and cells will heal. Now this acid plus the pepsin, they digest proteins and the cells of the stomach are made of proteins. That's the reason why these mucous cells make this alkaline mucus that will neutralize the hydrochloric acid that will not let it digest their own cells. But it's still, you can imagine that these cells are subject to a lot of, a lot of uh, damage. First, mechanical friction, all the food that we eat that mix and scrape in the surface and everything, plus the action of the enzymes. The mucus protects the cells, but it's sometimes it's not protect very well. And these cells, they have a high rate of mitosis to replace all this epithelium very quick. Every three days, every five days, all these cells are renewed completely. How does H. pylori The H. pylori is a bacteria that will actually damage these cells. And it will accelerate the time at which they are damaged. They don't have the time to replace so quick. And what happens? They are uncovered, they are unprotected, and they are subject to damage by the hydrochloric acid, the pepsin. And that's why the gastritis. H. pylori was something that was discovered, described, um, not too long ago. It's like about 30 years, probably, or 40 years ago. Before that, Gastritis, ulcers were considered just um, a chronic problem related with some types of personality, stress, and just that. But now we know that most of the cases of gastritis, ulcers, are produced by H. pylori, this bacteria. And the treatment has to be with antibiotics to kill this bacteria. So here's what we said. The starches uh, are Digestion in the mouth by the salivary amylase is not active at pH 2. So that's why there is no uh, activity of the enzyme in the stomach. Now this food that is processed and digested, proteins, are broken down by the enzyme, they're not absorbed yet. They're not absorbed in the stomach. In the stomach there is no absorption of nutrients except alcohol and aspirin because they have high solubility in lipids and they can cross the, um, the walls of the stomach and towards the, the blood. 
but other nutrients, they are not absorbed yet. The absorption occurs in the small intestine. H. pylori, as we mentioned, is um, a bacterium that affects the barriers, the mucosal barriers. It damages the cells. It damages the cells and making it more prone to get damaged. And it turns out that if this gastritis irritation gets chronic for a long time, there's an erosion of the mucosa called ulcer. And it's a big ulcer, an open wound in the surface of the stomach that takes a long time to heal. Uh, and the worst scenario is that if they are not treated promptly, uh, all this chronic irritation and damage may lead to malignant transformation and turn into a gastric cancer. Unfortunately, the sequence sometimes is H. pylori infection, gastritis, peptic ulcer, gastric cancer along many years. Some people sometimes they are not treated. They just say, oh, it's just a gastritis. They take antacids and um, along the way, we diagnose it as peptic ulcer or chronic ulcer with malignant transformation. But that's not happening too much nowadays because as soon as a gastritis is diagnosed, it has to be assessed with an endoscopy. We get into the stomach, we take biopsies, we diagnose it, we treat it, we control it, follow up every year, every two years to prevent that, uh, all these complications. Small intestine. Small intestine has three portions, three parts. First part connected to the stomach is called the duodenum or duodenum. Second portion, jejunum. And third, ileum. And we see it here in three different colors. The duodenum or duodenum looks bigger and bigger diameter. And as long as we go far, it turns smaller. Most of the absorption will happen here in the jejunum, a little bit in the healing. And inside, we see this foldings of the mucosa called plica circularis. And the point is to increase the surface for absorption. Since there's absorption at this point, more area, more surface area for absorption if the mucosa is folded with many, um, uh, we call them plica circularis. So what happens in the small intestine? In the small intestine, we have digestion completed. All carbohydrates, proteins, and lipids, fats are completely digested, especially in the first portion, the duodenum or duodenum. Then absorption. Here is where all the nutrients will be absorbed. Sugars, lipids, amino acids, calcium, minerals, vitamins, sodium, potassium, everything will be absorbed. Everything that we got in the food. And thanks to all these foldings, the absorption is very quick and effective. Now, if we go more 
into this plica circularis to see it microscopically, we will see even more extensions of the surface, and those are called intestinal villi. One intestinal villus, it's like a finger-like projection of the mucosa. And we can see that it's covered by the cells, which are simple columnar. And in between this simple columnar epithelium, we see goblet cells, which make mucus also. In the central part of this villus, like a finger, we have the lacteal, which is a lymphatic vessel, and also veins, capillaries, connecting to arteries and veins. So the absorption happens here. All these cells covering the villus is, are going to absorb the nutrients, sugars, proteins, lipids, and they will reach or either the blood or the lymph. A histology picture here showing the goblet cell with a bubble of mucus there. And another thing, if we get more to the detail of these cells on the apical surface of these cells, we see like a band here called brush border. And it looks like a, like a brush actually. If we go to represent this in a diagram, we will see this lumen and the cells showing this microvilli on the apical surface. These are called microvilli. Even more projections of the side of uh, the membrane of the cells. And that's, that's what we see in the histology picture as brush border. They're actually microvilli of those cells. It's just increasing the surface for absorption even more. And not only that, because there, in that part of the membrane of the cells, there will be more enzymes. These enzymes are called brush border enzymes. Brush border enzymes. And the importance of these brush border enzymes is that these enzymes are going to be the ones that finalize uh, digestion right before nutrients are absorbed. Like, if you remember, we talk about the amylase, we talk about starch getting digested into disaccharides, maltose, disaccharides. Now, the disaccharides will be here in the small intestine. In order to be absorbed, they have to turn into monosaccharides. And who does that? These brush border enzymes. That's what we say here, hydrolyzed disaccharides. But also polypeptides. So the amino acids, I mean the proteins, when digested by the stomach, they're broken down in tripeptides, dipeptides, short polypeptides. And then when it gets to the small intestine, before they are absorbed, the brush border enzymes will take care of them and break them down into single units of amino acids or monosaccharides. And then they will be absorbed.
This is a list of some of these brush border enzymes. One of them is familiar, lactase. This lactase is going to break down the disaccharide, the disaccharide, lactose, to glucose and galactose, which are monosaccharides. Some people, they have deficiency of lactase. It's a brush border enzyme. They don't have this enzyme. So what's gonna happen? The lactose that they eat, it's not going to be broken down into the monosaccharides, will not be absorbed. And even worse, it will, it will stay in the intestine and inside of the small intestine and increase the amount of solutes there. And when there is more solutes, it will pull water with it. And if it's more water there, that means that there will be more water in the intestinal contents, and the result may be diarrhea. That's one of the symptoms of people with lactose intolerance. Now, this is explaining the contraction of the intestines. Intestinal contractions, the motility, how it goes along the digestive tube how the food goes uh, along the digestive tube. There are two movements, peristalsis and segmentation. As shown peristalsis is a wave of contractions that moves the food forward. And the segmentation, it helps to mix the food inside, which is called the chyme. Both things happen at the same time. Peristalsis is a segmentation, and they help two things, to move the food along and to mix the food better. Large intestine. Brief review of the anatomy, the large intestine starts in the connection with the small intestine, with the ileum, there is a connection called the ileocecal valve. The large intestine has different segments. One of them is the cecum, which is the initial part. That's where the appendix is. And then the column that has up to four portions. Ascending column, transverse column, descending column, and sigmoid column, called sigmoid because it has the shape of an S. And then the rectum. The rectum connecting to the anal canal. What happens in the large intestine? Well, most of the absorption happens in the small intestine, so there's not much things to absorb. Instead, all the things that were not absorbed, the fiber or products that we didn't digest uh, chemically, they continue its way, and they get the large intestine. All the wastes and remains of the food will be taken to the large intestine. But there is absorption of water electrolytes, 
vitamin K and vitamin B or complex. Especially these two types of vitamins are mostly produced by microorganisms that we have here. This is called intestinal microbiota. Normal flora, we have normal flora, we have bacteria there, a lot of bacteria, but it is good for us because they, some of them, they make vitamin K, vitamin B, and help us. We absorb those vitamins from the large intestine. And the feces, which are all the remains and wastes that are temporarily stored until they reach the anal canal. This relationship between the bacteria and our organism is called mutualism. We both benefit from it. Bacteria are mostly anaerobic. And it's very important to keep it in balance. When a baby is born, we'll receive colonization of bacteria from the mother, and they will progressively form its own uh, normal flora. Sometimes people taking antibiotics for a long time will affect the intestinal flora. And after two weeks, three weeks receiving antibiotics, they will have chronic diarrhea because there's an imbalance of microorganisms in the colon. It has to be restored, it's stopped all of the antibiotics, and, and wait until the bacteria recolonize the Colin. Yep. So babies that are like born through section, how are they good? Not same. Not like same because that colonization happens in the first days when they start um, getting the nursing time. All the flora from the mother will be passed on to the baby. It's just by contact, and they, they colonize the the inside. It is amazing how we, I mean, we don't notice, but all these bacteria quickly enter into the babies and through physical contact, not necessarily to be food, but just the contact with the mother, the mother will pass all this intestinal floor. Fluids absorption and electrolyte. We said most absorption happens in the small intestine. But water and electrolytes will keep being absorbed in the large intestine. Well, small intestine, but also continues being absorbed in the large intestine. But it's still, after all the water is absorbed, there's still 200 milliliters. Minimal, should be present in the feces and um, not be absorbed. Final movement of the digestive tube defecation happens when the, all this material gets into the rectum. And again, the same mechanism. There's pressure against the walls of the rectum and that stimulates a reflex loop that will be a contraction of the rectum. Um, and there are two sphincters in the anus. One of them is called internal sphincter and the second is the external sphincter. The internal sphincter is smooth muscle and is reflex. So in the rectum, 
Finally, the anal canal is full with feces that will stimulate the internal anal sphincter to relax. In preparation for defecation, that is when the sensation of urge is felt. But the external sphincter is skeletal muscle and is voluntarily. And that's the one we learn how to control in the first years of life. During the defecation process, if time comes, we get ready and the external anal sphincter will relax. And the rectal muscles will contract to increase the pressure. The sphincters relax both. And that is enough for the defecation to happen. We can get some help from the abdominal wall muscles, the rectus abdominis, and the lateral muscles, and pelvic muscles uh, too. That's called Valsalva's maneuver. Excessive pressure, the pressure exerted by the abdominal muscles during defecation. relaxation of this internal anal sphincter, but the external is contracted, it's voluntary. When the internal sphincter relaxes, that's when we feel the urge, but we control it with the external sphincter. When we get ready, we are ready for defecation, then we relax the external sphincter, and the pressure of this rectum will be enough to um, keep going with the process of defecation. Hemorrhoids are dilation of veins that are located here under the mucosa. And depending, most important thing about hemorrhoids is that the excessive pressure exerted here will break these veins and will start bleeding. It actually, the muscles are not affected unless there's excessive hemorrhoids, they uh, open, they heal, and they may affect the internal sphincter at some point. Uh, hemorrhoids is related with chronic constipation usually, and that is, increases the pressure here, and there's more congestion of blood uh, provoking that dilation of the veins, yes. What, what is hemorrhoids, the, the Hemorrhoids are dilation of veins that are here under the There are two types of hemorrhoids. There are some called internal hemorrhoids and external hemorrhoids. Because sometimes the veins are dilated, are here inside, cannot be seen from outside, but sometimes it gets, it gets very worse. And even the veins outside can be seen. Because all this area is very well vascularized with a lot of veins. How is that treated? That is treated, especially with a stool softener first. And if it's very, very bad. They can even be um, removed, surgical removed. And, what, causes what causes hemorrhoids? <laughs> the excessive pressure is usually uh, related with chronic constipation because 
It's like the varicose veins in the legs. It's exactly the same mechanism. The varicose veins in the legs, they develop because there's a problem with the circulation. Well, here, the problem of circulation comes from chronic constipation sometimes. There's excessively, the rectum always full with uh, feces, and the person makes a lot of pressure to push and defecate and dilate the veins in a chronic way. And uh, when they bleed, it may be really serious and hard to contain unless they are surgically controlled. Oh, yeah. It is, yeah. It is very painful. And, yeah. Okay, any other question, any other comment? Let's have a break. <laughs>